0: Last time we met together, we discussed, the, I, not the identity of the Antichrist, but we started discussing what the Antichrist isn't. Before we articulate who or what the Antichrist power is, we need to articulate what it isn't. And as our theme song says, of course, more about Jesus is we, what we really want, right? We don't want to, we, an, ad, an understanding of the identity of the Antichrist will not save you, Only knowing, having a personal faith relationship with Jesus Christ brings salvation. Is that clear? Okay. But having said that, the reason we talk about the Antichrist is because the enemy of God wants you to not have that knowledgeable relationship with Jesus Christ, so he wants to put an imposter in his place. Now, we talked about some of the myths of the Antichrist last time that the idea is that oh the antichrist will only show up at the very end of time and it will be a non-religious figure it will be a political or military or some sort of outside figure who will come in and it will be oppressing the church and it will coming in from the outside where the bible repeatedly indicates that the antichrist was already stirring this what John called the spirit of antichrist what Paul said was already at work in the world in the time of the early church, and it would only develop clearer and clearer, as Paul said in 2 Thessalonians, it will be, the restraining power at that time will be removed, and at its time, the Antichrist would be revealed, that man of sin, and what was that other thing, It was man of sin, and what else was it called, the son, son of perdition, and of course, the other reference to son of perdition in the Bible is to what other person, can you recall, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 apostles of Jesus, one of the 12 disciples, his inner core group. This was not an, an outside oppressor, but it was an inside betrayer, okay? Someone coming from within the church, and this seems to be what we see as the apostle John, we see the apostle Paul, all as they look forward to this antichrist power, They're not talking about something from the outside at the very end who will come into a press, but something that's been there all along that will grow and emerge and grow stronger, fall away, and then try to not only be opposed to God, but stand in the place of God, in the temple of God, to be worshipped as God, claiming that he is God. That's the Antichrist power we're looking for. And I believe the devil has done a very good job of keeping us uninformed about the truth of the Antichrist so that he can bring in his deceptions at the very end, which is the number one thing that Jesus said, watch out for, lest no one deceive you, okay? So we're going to continue our study. Now we're going to look more at the identity of the Antichrist and not just the myths of who the Antichrist typically is thought of to be, but what does the Bible actually say the Antichrist is? That's the burden of our study tonight, part two of Antichrist evidence, but before we get started in our study, Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so, so much for being a God who created us, who relates to us, a God who sent his only son for us. And Lord, we understand that through a knowledge of Jesus Christ, a faith relationship with him, that we are saved. But Lord, we also know that there's an enemy who doesn't want us to have salvation. Though he knows his time is short, he's trying for as as much collateral damage as possible and to steal away and to kill. But Lord, help us to not be deceived, not by trusting in our own inclinations or thoughts or ideas, but Lord, help us to test all things by your word and hold fast to that which is good. So help us study tonight accurately, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to go back to Daniel chapter 2. So let's go to page 856. We went to Daniel chapter 2 on our very opening night. In your pew Bibles, again, it's page 856. We started off with Daniel chapter 2 because God's litmus test, his evidence that he is the, all, the uh, eternal, all-knowing God of the universe, is predictive prophecy. He basically says, anything else that claims to be God, let them set all the things that are going to come in order and see if they can get it right. I'm a God who not only claims to know the future, but I will proclaim it to you. You can write it down, put it on a timeline, and watch it all develop exactly as I have said. Okay, So, he does this, and in Daniel chapter 2, just a quick review, again, we've studied this before, but he gave King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon at the time, and that time was 500 years, roughly, before Jesus' birth, Okay, way back in Old Testament times, 2,500 years, basically, from where we're sitting tonight, a history of the entire future of the world from that time. And basically he said, you, O king, are that head of gold. And then that great image, you recall, had the different metals, different parts of the head, the chest and arms. He said, you, O king, are that head of gold, and after you another kingdom will come, inferior to yours. And then a third kingdom, and then a fourth kingdom that will be divided. Okay? And we go through this outline very quickly. In fact, let's just go through it in the scripture itself, just so we can recall it. Verse 31 of Daniel chapter 2. You, O king, were watching, and behold a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was what? Awesome. It was a glorious, grand thing. This image's head was of fine gold. Its chest and arms of what metal? Silver. Its belly and thighs of bronze or brass. Its legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of so notice that the iron continues all the way to the feet, but at the end of the feet, the feet and the toes part, it becomes iron mixed with clay. Okay, now verse 35, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, this, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, it's verse 34. We skipped a verse, a very important verse. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. So the stone comes into this image. Does it strike it on its head? No, not the chest and arm. All the way at the very end at its feet and toes, right? Strikes the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces, verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, the whole history of the world, right, was crushed together and became like chaff from the th- summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And he goes on to explain, this is the dream, now we will tell the interpretation. And he goes on to explain how, verse 37, you, O king, are a king of kings. And he basically wraps it up at the end of verse 38, you are this head of gold. Speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, that Babylonian empire. But, verse 39... After you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, and as much as iron breaks in pieces, shatters everything, is like the iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Basically what you see, and again we don't want to go exhaustively over this because we've spent a good part of an evening on this before, but in Daniel chapter two, King Nebuchadnezzar, through this dream that God gives him, is shown the entire history of the world from that point forward from Babylon on in the image of that dream, right? The image of a great man. He was the head of gold, but after him another kingdom, which we later on, Daniel chapter 8, by the way, specifically says the Medes and Persians, Medo-Persia. Then the, then the belly and thighs of brass or bronze was Greece. And after Greece comes the great iron empire of what? Rome. And of course, Rome doesn't get taken over by another kingdom. It simply divides into ten different sub-kingdoms, if you will. So the empire of Rome divides and becomes divided Rome. So basically, let's go to our fill-in-the-blanks now. What, you were, what we saw in Daniel chapter 2, looking at the earth's history, were four, that's the first word there, four successive empires. Successive means one right after the other. This one, and then this one, then this one, then this one. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece... And Rome. Of course, Rome, that next line down, exists in two phases. You have the legs of iron, it's just iron, one material, one empire of Rome, imperial Rome, if you will. Then it divides into the feet and toes, and you have different materials. You have still iron, but it's mixed with clay, right? And it talks about how just as clay doesn't mix with iron, they will try to mingle with the seeds of men, but will not adhere to one another. There will be divided kingdoms there, so you have Rome in two phases, imperial Rome and divided Rome, okay? Then, the next thing you see is Christ's eternal kingdom established with the stone that was cut out and grows into a mountain, and notice, if you would, you can go on through this, the interpretation that's given to the king doesn't really focus on Babylon. He says you, O king, or the king of kings, the Lord has given you this kingdom. He's talking to the king of Babylon, so he says some things, but... For instance, when he goes to the next kingdom, basically says, and another kingdom will come up, check, then another kingdom, check, but then he gets into Rome and really starts to talk about Rome. The emphasis, by the way, is not just on the legs of Rome, but especially on the time of the feet and toes, okay? That's your fill in the blank. The feet and toes are a focus of Daniel 2's interpretation. In fact, we'll just go back to the chapter. I want you to see this for yourself. Again, we saw in verse 39, after you another kingdom shall rise inferior to yours, then another kingdom. He gets two kingdoms in one verse. Okay, Medo-Persia, Greece. Check, check. Not the focus of the interpretation. Then we go into verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, and as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like the iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Okay, so there's a whole, there's a whole uh, passage there, a whole sentence, a whole uh, what's the word I'm looking Verse, (laughs) thank you, devoted to imperial Rome. But then look at verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be, what's that word? It's still the same kingdom, right? That kingdom will be simply divided. So it's going to emphasize the second phase of Rome or divided Rome in the interpretation. Continuing on. Verse 42. Oh, I'm sorry, we're still finishing 41. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And you think, oh, it's time to be done with that. But he's still going, verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. Notice it's still Rome, it's just in a divided phase, these different toes, and it's got fragile and strong, it's divided. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, he's still going, verse 43. Verse 43. As you saw, iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So you have multiple verses, not, if it takes one verse and talks about uh, Medo-Persia and Greece, then Imperial Rome gets a verse all of its own, but then you have three verses in a row talking about the feet and toes, the time of the divided Rome. I want to highlight that because that seems to be the emphasis of the interpretation. Daniel is not given equal treatment for each kingdom that comes along. Basically, he just says, yeah, yeah, Babylon, me to Persia, Greece, but let me tell you about Rome, and especially that end time as it's going to be divided. That's where our tension is going to be focused. Okay? So again, the interpretation emphasizes the feet and the toes. Now, let's go back to our worksheet. Prophecy key number one. Prophecy key number one. Prophecy as you're going to see, especially big picture in time, or as they call it, apocalyptic prophecy, like Daniel and Revelation, always does one thing, and that's very, very handy. It always repeats and enlarges, okay? It always repeats and enlarges. So what we see in Daniel chapter 2 is the basic framework, the basic framework, the basic outline of world history for the 2,500 years from Babylon to the return of Jesus Christ. There are certain things that it doesn't say. It's a very clear overview, but there are more details that could be added. I want to be clear about that. Daniel chapter 2. For instance, you notice, if you were to study Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is not at all perturbed by the dream. It says he gets great reward. It never says he's disturbed by it. He never loses sleep. He's never anxious. He's not troubled in his spirit. He's fine. All Daniel 2 shows is a successive, uh, successive chronology of political empires, right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Rome divides into ten sub-kingdoms, and then the real kingdom will come when Jesus sets up his kingdom. That's everything that he's shown in Daniel chapter 2. There's nothing spiritual about it outside until Jesus returns. The whole thing is just a political history of the world. No problem. Which, by the way, Daniel, Daniel lived in Jerusalem, was kidnapped from there, came to Babylon, was threatened with death a couple times, survived that, but he survived the entire kingdom of Babylon. You read through his book, and he dies during the time of Cyrus, the Persian. So he's lived through Jerusalem, and Babylon, and the Medes, and the Persians. Another political empire is nothing to Daniel. Piece of cake in Daniel chapter 2. But what we see here, again, this prophecy, I want to talk about this, it lays the foundation, but now what we're going to see when you turn to Daniel chapter 7, which is where we're going to next, if you want to thumb five chapters to the right, Daniel chapter 7, you have a repeating and enlarging of what was already given in Daniel chapter 2. So we go to page 864, the Daniel chapter 7. Again, this is fascinating to me. This will come up later in our seminar, so I want to plant this seed right now. Daniel did not receive the vision of Daniel chapter 2 directly. The dream was to whom? Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel simply interpreted his dream, right? He was given the dream to help help Nebuchadnezzar understand. Daniel's own vision, the first time he has one of those, doesn't come until Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Just an interesting tidbit. While all during Nebuchadnezzar's life, the only vision received was to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, you find another one in Daniel chapter 4. It's fascinating. But Daniel chapter 7, Nebuchadnezzar's off the scene, a new king's on the throne, and God speaks directly to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of, what's that word? Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So we're still inside of what empire? Babylon, but there's a new king on the throne, right? Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. By the way, this is just, uh, just as an aside, this is a very handy passage to demonstrate that God does not operate by verbal dictation. He doesn't say, take this and write this down, write this down, write this down, exactly what I, and he doesn't just pick up the writer's hand and move it around like, you know, like a pen. He shows Daniel this dream, and Daniel says it in his own words, I'm going to tell you the main facts, here's the point of what I saw, okay? So he outlines this simplified version of his dream. Verse 2, Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great what? Sea. Sea. Stirring up the great sea. This will become important later on, but the very first thing in Daniel's very first vision is he sees a sea. And is it calm and placid and beautiful? No, it's being churned up by the four great winds. It's foaming and frost, big churning sea, okay? Now, verse 3. And Four great beasts came up from the sea. Like I said, it'll be important later on where these beasts come from, but they come up out of the sea. Each different from the other. And you could think, well, if that's all the information you had, you could think that all four came up at the same time. A lineup of four beasts. But that's not what the text indicates. Look at verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 4. The first... Which implies there's one that came first, then another comes second, another comes third, right? The first was like a what? Lion. And had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Now, this is a fascinating parallel, and again, we're going to see that Daniel chapter 7 is simply a repetition of Daniel chapter 2, but it's going to expand and enlarge on a certain section of the prophecy, okay? But here we see the lion is going to be a parallel to the kingdom of Babylon. And interestingly enough, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, Daniel already said, you, O king, are that head of gold, right? This individual, you were the part that made it so great— And if you were to read through the book of Daniel, if you're good at Daniel chapter, you don't have to go to it right now, but read Daniel chapter 4 and you'll find an incredibly humbling experience this King Nebuchadnezzar went through. By the way, I have had the opportunity to go to the British Museum where they have all these Babylonian uh, relics and, and, and artifacts. And you know what the symbol of the kingdom of Babylon is? It's a winged lion. Fascinating. So you have this great, these gates, you know, with this big lion on it and everything, but it's got these big eagle's wings on it. Fascinating. Anyway, so here is this lion being described, but it's not just a lion with eagle's wings and it's a great, great thing. It's a humbled lion had those wings torn off and it was set up and given the heart of a man, right? You see a change in the heart of this leader of Babylon. Fascinating. But we continue on. Verse 5, as he's looking at this one, This first beast, all of a sudden, verse 5 comes along, and suddenly another beast, a second like a what? Bear. It was raised up on one side. Now, that's an interesting tidbit to keep in mind. Apparently, it had, you know, a bear is a symmetrical left and right. It's got two right paws and two left paws. But one side, it was raised up. It was bigger, it was bulkier on one and smaller on the other. It had a superior side and a diminutive side, a big one and a little one. It was raised up on one side. And had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, so something had been eating on it. It had conquered three different things and had the ribs in its mouth. And they said to the to it, "Arise, devour much flesh." So there's this bear that's raised up on one side. And again, if we were to continue our parallel back to Daniel chapter two, the second part of King Nebuchadnezzar's image were the chest and arms. Just like a symmetrical bear, you have two sides, but every person has a strong side and a weak side, right? How many left-handed people do we have in here? Amen. Amen. We should have a special prayer just for you saints. We've had to live in the world of three-ring binders and spiral notebooks. Everything's against us. I know what it's like to be in the minority, okay? But I'm a left-handed person too, and, and for instance, it, it's really weird, but my forearms are my forearm is bigger on my left side than my right side. I wasn't just born defective or something like that, but this one is just this side is more developed because that's the one I use primarily, right? And the same thing happens. You have a dom- strong hand and a dominion of hand. You have a powerful side and a weaker side. Here in, in Daniel chapter two, there was the unity of the Medes and Persians, but of course the Medes were the dominion of side and the Persians became that superior, dominating side. In the bear of Daniel chapter 7, you have two sides, but one is stronger or bigger than the other, raised up on one side. But we got to continue. Verse 6. After this, I looked, and there was another, like a what animal? A leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Is it clear, by the way, that we're looking at symbolic language? right? Very clear that this does not represent that there would be out of a sea comes a four-headed leopard with four wings, right? Not what we're looking at, but we are looking at symbolic language that have meanings, right? Anyway, this one has four heads and four wings, and one of the little keys, always in prophecy, wings represent speed, flying swiftly, like if you want to go, even the same thing now, if you want to go somewhere fast, boy, he just flew, right? Somebody got there really, you you must have just flown down the road, right? We still use the same imagery. Anyway, verse 7 continues. After this, in the night visions, and behold, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, and it doesn't give us an animal. It just simply calls it dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. Dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong, terrifying beast. It had huge, what is that? iron See te- What kind of teeth did it have? What does that automatically take you back to? Daniel chapter 2, the fourth kingdom of iron, which was, of course, Rome. Same parallel all the way down. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, again, we're going to get into what horns are later on. We're going to decipher all of the symbolic language. I just want to put the basic picture in your head first. I was considering the horns. By the way, was in Daniel chapter 2, was there a division into ten parts for, for Rome? Yes, the ten toes, right? Now we have a terrible, dreadful iron beast that's divided into ten horns. So the jig is up. Horns are kingdoms. I'll just tell you, okay? That's an easy one. Horns are kingdoms. It's the exact same thing he'd seen in Daniel chapter 2. So, so far, all he's gotten is the same information as Daniel 2, just with different imagery to go along with it. Is that clear so far? Okay, we continue. Now, verse 8, things get interesting. I was considering the horns, right? So he's thinking about the horns. And if he's thinking, if he's already in his mind put together the parallel, ah, this is Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Of course, he doesn't know the names of Babylon. I mean, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome yet, but he's thinking Babylon, then another kingdom, then another, and then there's that fourth one, and I bet it's going to be divided. Yep, there it is, ten horns, right? He's ready to go. So he's right there thinking about the ten horns. Verse 8, I was considering the horns, and there was another one, another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, there was no mention of anything else after the toes except Jesus' return and God setting up his kingdom. But now, it's enlarging on that part that it was emphasizing last. Now, it's giving us more information. He was thinking about the ten toes, the, the ten horns. Again, I was considering the horns. There was another one, a little one. So, we're introduced to this nefarious little character called the little horn. <laughs> now, that's a funny little name, and, but we'll get into it. And there in this horn, so he's, remember he's first looking at the tin horns, then he sees this little horn, he's looking very closely at this little horn who's getting bigger and it's plucking up things in its way, right? And there in this horn were the eyes, like the eyes of a what? And a mouth speaking pompous words. Apparently it doesn't have like iron teeth, it doesn't have wings, it doesn't have horns, it doesn't have all this extra stuff. This little horn power only has two attributes, Eyes And what do you do with eyes? You see, you look around, right? That's it. Which, by the way, if I saw a horn on an animal at some point and had its own set of eyes, that would get my attention, yeah? It's like, dude, the horns were looking at me. It's like, I'm not using metaphor. Literally, it had eyes. It was staring at me. It was super creepy, right? Eyes, and then what was the other attribute it had? Mouth. And what kind of things were coming out of its mouth? What's another word for Pompous boastful, proud, arrogant, right? I'm great, blah, blah, blah. I don't know why I gave the horn a high-pitched voice. Maybe it's a little horn, right? And you think, oh, he's got to But all it does is look around and talk really big. It's a little horn that says big, big things, right? And this is the culmination. He's seen this lion, this bear, this leopard, this terrible beast, the ten horns, and then this little horn comes up with these eyes and boastful mouth. And so Daniel's doing exactly what you and I would do. He's just considering and thinking about this little horn. Now watch what happens. Verse 9, I watched till, something else gets its attention, till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. You know, it doesn't take much of a scientist to figure out who is the Ancient of Days. This is God Himself, right? And He sits on a throne, and there were th- throne seated, and He comes in. His, his hair was pure like wool. His, phone, his throne was like fiery flame. Its wheels, a burning fire. Verse 10 continues. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before Him, and thousands, th- a thousand thousands ministered to Him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. Now, notice this is be very critical. The court was seated, and the books were opened. This is a courtroom scene, and who is the judge? God, right? He sees the judgment of God. God comes in, and he's not alone. Ten thousand times ten thousand, thousand thousands are there. It's a huge event. God sits down on this throne that is now set in place for a specific purpose. You can imagine a gavel in hand, you know, the court is seated, and the books are open. This is a picture of judgment. God doing a work of judgment. So notice the sequence. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome, but in the time of divided Rome, up comes this little horn. The eyes and the mouth, and Daniel's focused on that until something else arrests his attention this grand vision, this grand scene of a throne room in heaven where God sits down and begins to do the work of judgment. Now, watch what happens. Continuing our story. Notice we're just reading directly through it. Verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words that the horn was speaking. So notice he's watching the little horn first then his, he's watching this throne in heaven, this courtroom scene where God is sitting as judge. And then what does he hear? More pompous words. So he looks again, and lo and behold, there's that little horn again. Fascinating. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time so each of them had their time but theirs was taken away as well just like you saw in Daniel chapter 2 when the stone that was cut out without hands smashes the feet and toes then the iron the clay and the bronze and the uh, silver and the gold all were destroyed as they washed away the whole history of the world is wrapped up because now we're at God's eternal kingdom it's the now he goes basically back to what he had seen in Daniel chapter 2 the destruction of all the other beasts or in this instance I mean this instance the beasts and Daniel 2 is the rest of the image. Verse 13. So you would expect now that you would see Jesus sets up his kingdom, and that's exactly what you see in verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, behold one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and you would think, aha, here he comes to the earth, right? But notice where does he go? He came to where? What did we just see the ancient of days has been doing? Setting up this courtroom scene, right? calling together all the thousands of thousands, opening the books, setting the thrones in place. The Ancient of Days takes his seat. And now, one like the Son of Man, which is always the Christ's moniker for himself, that's what he called it, With the Son of Man returns in all of his glory. He's talking about Jesus here. And behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So before Christ returns to this earth, he goes into this judgment scene, in heaven. Fascinating. Now, then, verse 14, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, just like we saw in Daniel chapter 2, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So, verse 15, by the way, how did Daniel like this vision? I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. Because you can imagine, after Daniel chapter 2, what he saw in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, Rome, Rome gets divided, then Jesus comes. Piece of cake, clean, simple. But now he's given the same overview of history, chronological outline, but more is given him specifically about the time of the toes, or in this time, the time of the ten horns. More information, so it gives the same, it repeats, and now it enlarges on this part of the vision. And he's given two added pieces of information. Number one, we're introduced to this character called the little horn. And number two, we see this judgment scene, this courtroom scene in heaven. And only after those things transpire, then does Jesus set up his kingdom, and it will be never taken away, and the saints will inherit the earth. Beautiful, beautiful thing. But Daniel understands, the prophet Daniel here understands, that this is the same thing he saw, but he's getting more information. And something is very off about this one, enough so that it troubles him. So let's go to the other side of our worksheet. We're just going to... Uh, by the way, all we're doing is study straight through Daniel chapter 7. Now, recall last night, the Antichrist has several names. Antichrist, son of perdition, man of sin, and yes, little horn. Okay. So this little horn power is this Antichrist that we were studying about last night. Daniel was troubled by it, and watch what he says here in verse 16. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. Basically, he says, what does this all mean? Now... <laughs> He's in the position that Nebuchadnezzar was in, right? Tell me the interpretation. Now Daniel wants to understand what his own dream means. Verse 17. Oh, I'm sorry. Continue verse 16. I asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Now carefully watch the interpretation and you tell me if it satisfied Daniel's curiosity. Verse 17. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. Do you think Daniel has pieced that together already? I think so. Okay, Now, verse 7. So that's the first sentence. The whole interpretation is two sentences long. We're halfway through it. Those four beasts are four kings that arise out of the earth. Okay. Verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Do you notice? Four kings, and then the saints will get a kingdom of their own and possess it forever and ever and ever. What has he not talked about? The little horn or that judgment scene in heaven? Everything he's been given in this initial interpretation is stuff he already knew. So Daniel's like, oh, good. Oh, now I know that there's four empires that are going to come, four kingdoms on the earth. And then after those four, there will be an eternal kingdom of God's people. Good to know. Of course not. We continue in our worksheet. Watch this now. This answer did not satisfy Daniel because it merely explained everything he already knew. There was nothing new in this interpretation, even though the vision clearly had some new elements to it. But he wasn't told anything about the new. So Daniel was specifically interested. Now let's find out what he was interested in. Before we fill in the blanks, let's find it from Scripture. Verse 19. What is Daniel's response? He doesn't say, Thank you, sir. I appreciate that clarity. It says in verse 19. Verse 19. Then I wish to know the truth about what? The fourth beast. Does he care about the first beast, second beast, or third beast? Doesn't even ask a question. Babylon, Medo Persia, Greece, Rome, whatever. I mean, Babylon, Medo Persia, Greece, no problem. But look at verse four, 19. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with his teeth of iron and his nails of bronze, which devoured, uh, devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with his feet. But now his sentence isn't done. It's only a semicolon, right? I want to know about this uh, this fourth beast, but, and, it says in verse 20, the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely, that horn with had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than its fellows. So notice this. He doesn't just care about the fourth beast in general, nor the ten horns specifically. He wants to know exactly who this little beast, Horn is. Why is he so interested in the little horn? Look at verse 21. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against whom? Aha. Babylon, Medo Persia, Greece, Rome, whatever, political kingdom, then Jesus comes. But this little horn is different. It's making war against the saints. Notice, and not just war against the saints and prevailing against them. It wasn't just trying to war. It was actually warring and winning against the saints. Now, that was never mentioned in Daniel chapter 2. This got his attention. Until, verse 22, the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So he's like, I understand that there's four kingdoms and someday Jesus will set up a kingdom, but you missed out on that little horn and the judgment that will end it. Tell me about that. So, verse 23, thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. Does he know that already? Yes. Yes. Which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. Verse 24. The ten horns, here's our interpretation, are ten what? Ten kings. These are ten little sub-kingdoms of that same divided nation. Who shall arise from this kingdom? And another shall arise, and this will be key, when does it arise? After them. He shall be different from the first ones. This was going to be unique little different power. And shall subdue three kings. So in his rise, he takes out three of those other horns in his path. Verse 25. Still speaking of the little horn. He shall speak pompous words against whom? The Most High. He sp- those pompous words that were coming out of his mouth were directed against God. So that's one thing he's going to do. Notice we're going to have a list, and this is going to be a fill-in-the-blank, by the way. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall, what's that next word? Persecute the saints of the Most High. So notice he's targeting the Most High. He's going to go after, he's going to just speak against Him in general, speaking words against the Most High. Shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and then what shall he do and shall intend to change times and law okay the implication being the times and law of whom god right the most high then the sh- saints shall be given into his hand and notice what the interpretation adds that the dream didn't for a time times and half a time there's a particular time time frame where this little horn power would have control over the saints and persecute them. But, verse 26, but the court shall be seated. So, after that time, then the court will be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom And dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Verse 28 This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, I believe we skipped, by the way, one fill in the blank up there. I apologize. Daniel was specifically interested in the little horn and the judgment in heaven. Those two elements that were not given in Daniel 2 and that were new to Daniel chapter 7, that vision. And again, the little horn would speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, shall intend or think to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given to his hand. And it says for how long? For a time, times, and half a time. Now it's introduced, the interpretation has introduced a new element, namely time prophecy. Okay? Now, the sequence from Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 match perfectly, except Daniel 2 just it goes a political history, then Jesus comes. Daniel 7, at the time of the feet and toes, or as Daniel 7 would say, the time of the ten horns, expands and enlarges... And gives us this little horn and a judgment in heaven. Keep that in mind. Which, by the way, on the front side of your sheet, that's why we have them side by side like that. So the one has the expanding and enlarging. I hope you see that. But now let's go to prophetic key number two. All right. So the first key of prophecy was that whenever these big histories are given, it simply is repeating what was already given before and then enlarging on some part of it. Okay? prophecy key number one uh, repeat and enlarge or expand now prophecy key number two how do you understand or decipher decode time prophecy so he says all right it's gonna be for a time times and half a time i have no clue naturally what time times and half a time is and there's no interpretation given in the text there it just simply says it's going to be for that long well handily enough Daniel chapter, in fact, just the book of Daniel, is not the only book in the Bible we're given. We have 65 other books we can check from, right? And the Bible is its own interpreter. And handily enough, the Lord has already used this concept of prophetic time elsewhere in Scripture. So what we need to do is find other times where the Lord has given a future prophecy, and he has used time prophecy, and He given an explanation of how to understand it. Let's go to the book of Numbers. Book of Numbers, appropriately enough, if we're looking at time prophecy. (laughs) Numbers chapter 14, that's going to be page 140 in your pew Bible. Numbers chapter 14, verse 34. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers chapter 14, and verse 34. To give you just a brief little bit of context, this is talking about the the ancient Israelites before they've gone into the land of Canaan. In fact, they were just about to go into the land of Canaan. They've been wandering through the wilderness. They've received the commandments of God, the instructions for the tabernacle, which we're going to look at in a whole night one time. They wander through this wilderness. They come to the edge of the promised land, and God says, go for it, cross the Jordan River, take it as your own. And they say, "Uh, okay, but let's take a look first. And they send in 12 spies to spy out the land. And they come back with a report that says, the land is beautiful, it's awesome, but there's a problem. It's filled up with people, big people, scary people. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. So we've come all this way, but I move, and someone else seconded the motion, that we go back, <laughs> or that at least we just don't go forward. Let's just stay here. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, said, Come on, guys, we serve a bigger God than that. He said, it's our land, let's go, go for it. And the people went with the 10 instead of the 12, and they decided not to cross into the promised land. The Lord was not not pleased with his people when they decided right at the very finish line to stop the race. Okay, notice this now. I bring that all up to go to Numbers chapter 14 and verse 34. Where it says here, Watch this. Uh, verse 33. Let's back up one verse. And your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness for how long? Forty years. Okay, so the real time is going to be 40 years long. Why does he come up with 40 years? Because you've heard about the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. Why was it 40 years? It tells us right here in the Scripture. Your sons should be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. By the way, what was the purpose of them wandering around for 40 years? So everybody could die. It's really not, you know, a pick-me-up, feel-good thing, but it's the truth. Now look at verse 34. Why 40 years? According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land. So they sent these spies in there for a little over a month or 40 days looking around, and they come back and say, guys, we've got to get out of here. And God says, all right, you've spent 40 days in there, and I'm going to send you 40 years out in the wilderness. Watch this now. And he says, why? According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. You see a very similar thing if you go right back close to the book of Daniel, right before it, to the book of Ezekiel. Very quickly, page 804, you see the same thing, Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6. God, once again, as he's dealing with his people and something they're going to have to face in the future, he employs this prophetic time element, explains time prophecy to them. Ezekiel chapter 4. Now, as you're finding Ezekiel 4 on page 804, some of the prophets had some interesting job descriptions. Hosea, for example, was supposed to marry a prostitute to be a living demonstration of what it was like for God to have a people who were unfaithful to him. He's like, you're going to marry this woman, and she's going to cheat on you, and when it hurts, now you'll know how I feel. That was his ministry. I I don't want to be that guy. I'm thankful I haven't been called to that, right? Ezekiel had another unique ministry. He was supposed to build, part of his ministry was to build these little dioramas in the ground and stuff, like little, here's the encampment of Jerusalem, and then here comes the invading army, <clears throat> and it's going to wipe it out, that kind of thing. And he was supposed to watch this, watch just for instance. Verse 4, let's just start there. Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 4. Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, because at this time there was Israel and then there was Judah. God's people had divided themselves into two camps. Israel was the larger one. Judah was the smaller one. Lay also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of the iniquity according to the number of the days. 390 days so shall you bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. So he is supposed to come to work every day and lay on his left side. And the next day he was going to come back and lay on his left side. And he was supposed to do this 390 days, over a year. And he said, every day is a year that you're going to have to face in exile. Interesting. Now, keep going to verse 6. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side. And I can imagine him thinking, please help it be a short amount of time, you know. Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. How long? Forty days. I have laid on you a day for each day year. So notice this. Consistently, when God looks to the future of his people and he outlines a time prophecy that deals with them, you know, particularly something negative that's going to happen, he always uses this day in prophecy equals a year in real time, okay? Now, that's extraordinarily simple, but it helps us unlock all the time prophecies of the Bible, All through the book of Daniel, all through the book of Revelation, you'll come up with time prophecies. Some will be in days, some will be in weeks, some will be in months, some will be in years. But anytime a time is given in a prophecy, all you have to do is use that key that God has already given his word, that a day, prophetic, equals a year in real time. And all of a sudden, you're understanding things. So, for instance, if you have a one-day prophecy, how long will it last in real life? One year. Now, let's go to the advanced course. If you have a one-week prophecy, prophecy, how long will it exist in real time? Seven years. You guys are geniuses. Seriously, that's, this is the entirety of it. Now, let's go for a month. One month in prophecy equals how many years in reality? 30, right? Now, let's do it for 12 months. Of course, 12 months is known as a year. So, if you have one prophetic year or time, you have 360 years. Now, you notice you sipped 365. Some of you, come on now. Biblically, a month is 30 days, and 12 of those does not equal 365. It equals 360. 365 is a handy little invention. Man, we'll get back to that at some other time, perhaps. But biblically, a day is one, a week is seven, a month is 30, and a year is 360. So if you have a one day prophecy of a one year reality, A one-week prophecy is a seven. So all you have to do is multiply it. If it says weeks, you just multiply how many weeks by seven. Boom. You got the real time. Does it make sense? So, for instance, if you had, let's make one up. A 42-month prophecy, how would you decipher it? 42 times 30 gives you the real time. Right? Now, what's interesting about this, it mentioned time, times, and half a time, or Time is one, one year. Two times is plural, right? And then a half a time, you add them all up, and you get three and a half times, or three and a half years. So if you took 3.5, that's three and a half, right? Times 360, 360, you would end up with this number called 1,260, okay? 1,260 literal years. Now, you might say, how did you get there? Well, we just walked you through how we got there, 1,260. This happens to be, by the way, the most repeated time prophecy in all the Bible. In fact, look on your little chart here. You find it in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, what we just saw there, as time, times, and half a time. Also in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, it refers to it again as time, times, and half a time. You get into the book of Revelation, and it talks about the same time period, but how do I know it's talking about the same time period? Because you just multiply it by the right things. Daniel chapter 11, verse 12, it refers to 42 months. And if you take... I made up 42 months for a reason, you know. 42 months, 42 times 30 is 1,260. Exactly what 3.5 times 360 is. 1,260. Okay? And just in case that's unclear, the next two times that it's mentioned in Scripture, in Revelation 11 and 12, it says 1,260 days. So you have it in days, you have it in months, and you have it in years, and they all just happen to equal the identical 1,260 literal year time period. It's a fascinating thing that the Lord does, but he's consistent in his use of symbols. Okay, We're almost done, but now, by the way, this prophecy key number one and two will give you the outline of the entire book of Daniel. It'll give you all of Revelation. It will help you decode all of the Bible's apocalyptic prophecies those two simple codes. You got your money's worth tonight, I promise you, okay? And you not. I know it was free, but still. <clears throat> Judgment in heaven. What's the last thing that he sees there, the other thing? But the court shall be seated, and by the way, this is planting a seed for a much later talk. But the court shall be seated, 7 verse 26 and 27. The court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms of the whole heaven shall be given to the people and the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So you see that there's going to be this little horn, Antichrist power, that comes out of Rome, not imperial Rome, but out of divided Rome. In fact, it comes up after the ten tribes or the ten kingdoms of divided Rome, among them but after them, uprooting three in its way, has eyes and a mouth that speaks pompous words against the Most High, persecutes the people of God, not for some little time at the very end of time, but a long stretch of Earth's history for 1,260 years of Earth's history. And now that's exactly the same thing we were talking about last night, not last night, the last time we were here together, when the Apostle Paul was saying in the time of imperial Rome he was living, saying, don't think that Jesus is coming right now. Because there are things that must take place before then, namely this man of sin, this son of perdition, must be revealed in his time. There's a time for him to be revealed and have his apex and power and zenith and glory. And during that time, it would be a time of persecution for the saints of God. But at the close of that time, after that time, God would sit and have a judgment in heaven. And then, of course, the little horn would speak again and be destroyed by the coming of Jesus. If you remember in Second Thessalonians, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that this man of sin, the son of perdition, would be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. So the spirit of Antichrist was already stirring in the early church. It was being held back by imperial Rome, but once imperial Rome got out of the way, power would be given over to this little horn beast, this little horn of the fourth beast, And for 1,260 years, it would persecute the people of God. After which, there would be a judgment of heaven. Then this little horn would start speaking pompous words once again, only to be destroyed by Jesus' return and the brightness of his coming. Okay? Now, if you put all the pieces of evidence together, it is inescapable, unavoidable, undeniable, completely biblical, who the Antichrist power is because there's only one entity in all of Earth's history that actually fit all of these criteria. And it's not Babylon, it's not Medo-Persia, it's not Greece, but it's something that comes out of Rome during the time of divided Rome, after it's been divided into the ten tribes, the ten kingdoms, divided Europe, if you will, right? And uproots three of these things in its way, and it's a little, it has no army, no anything, it's geographically small. Okay, let's just look at our reviewing the evidence here. The Antichrist power, according to the Bible, would be the culmination of an influence already at work in Christianity in the time of imperial Rome, which we saw last night. It would rise after the division of Rome into ten regional kingdoms, uprooting three in the process. It would be revealed or come to power at a specific time and remain dominant exactly 1,260 years. It would be a small kingdom within the geographic territory of divided Europe. It would have no military force of its own, but would instead rely on the strength of other kingdoms to enforce its will. It would think to change times and law and persecute the saints of the Most High. It would have a vocal and self-aggrandizing leader. Remember, eyes and a mouth like that of a man, speaking pompous words. And it would be in existence until the return of Jesus, when it would be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Last line right there. You can tell it to me already. There is only one power in earth's history that matches all of those criteria, and that is the Roman Catholic papacy. Bottom line. Nothing else matches. Nothing else fits. Now, there have been interesting ways to reinterpret the prophecies to get the spotlight of this off of this entity, but if you take simply the Bible as it reads, go through Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Imperial Rome, Divided Rome... And out of that comes this little horn power that does these things, which, by the way, an interesting thing happened in the year 538. We're going to let you go here in just about a minute and a half. In 538 AD, these ten empires who started dividing up Rome, these different tribal entities of Europe now that we have today, started dividing and divvying up Rome and, and, and taking it over and splitting it up, exactly as Scripture had said. And the Roman Empire, imperial Rome, no longer could handle. And so it turned the the keys of the state over to the one power that was respected almost unilaterally, and that was the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy. And in 538 AD, the papacy was given both the leadership of the church and also of the state. Took out three other tribes as it was coming up, and it becomes the seat of power for all of Europe for exactly 1,260 years. Now, if that were accurate, you would expect to see something at the close of that that would take away its power. And exactly in 1798, during what we now know as the French Revolution, Napoleon Bonaparte sent his general Berthier right down into the Vatican, which, by the way, is the smallest geographic territory in the world of this country. Yet, for some reason, nowadays, everyone in the, every country in the world has you know, diplomatic relations and ambassadors to and from the Vatican. Even though it's a small territory, no army, no much of anything. It's got, you know, not much. But it's so influential, so big, so powerful, exactly as the Bible described. But in 1798, Europe was some simply tired of being thrashed about and torn about and taxed and persecuted by this power that would make kings stand outside of its door in the snow for days because it offended him in some way, right? And the power that it had was not financial or military. It was spiritual with the threat of, I'll excommunicate you. I'll send you to hell. I'll give you longer time. I'll make it miserable. The afterlife concept, right? During that time, by the way, secular history will tell you, what is that time period known as now? The Dark Ages. Here's a reason. It was dark tough the crusades the inquisition the death of more people than wars combined these days ever have millions upon millions died at the hands of the church by the way there's a reason a lot of people don't like organized religion because that that's what the church did right interesting during that time at the close of that time general berthier marches literally into the vatican into the papacy into the the papal audience right there at the throne room and takes captive the Pope. Hauls him off, says, basically, you're a house of cards. You're done. Takes him to France. The Pope dies in exile, and the world rejoices. You're like, ha, there's been a fatal wound given to this power. This little horn is now dead. But where are we now? There is a resurgence of this power incredibly in the world today. It's fascinating how the Bible exactly point by point articulates the chronology of world history. And Christ says, there is a God. He is trustworthy. In fact, I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen, and you just sit back and watch. And I'll demonstrate the veracity of my claim. Now again, we reveal the Antichrist not because that gives you a knowledge of salvation. Now I have the inside scoop. Now I know. No, 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 no. It's so you understand where the misconceptions about Jesus Christ are coming from. Because we want to see Jesus more clearly. We mean, wipe, wipe away every smoke screen, every cloudy thing that might be in the way, and say, Lord, whatever your word actually says is what will go with it. We're going to test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Does that make sense? Amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you've given us your word, that you give us prophecy, not so that we can have some sneaky insider information but, Lord, that we can see clearly that your word is true, it's accurate, it's trustworthy. Lord, help us to understand that in our lives personally, that we can trust you at your word. And, Lord, we understand that we're living in a time, as Jesus would say, of almost universal deception. and We don't want to be deceived. So, Lord, give us that truth of your word. Help us to cut away everything is false and whatever remains, Lord, help us to cling to it. Help us to be faithful